0: So our Bible reading this morning is from Zechariah chapter 9, uh, and as we will see, uh, these words um, speak into the situation in Ukraine uh, and also our own uh, lives too. We're going to be reading from uh, verse 1 in chapter 9 to verse 13. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and on Tar and Sidon, though they are very skilful. Tar has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power in the sea, and he will be consumed by fire." Ashkelon will see it in fear, Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and will become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites but I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rise your son, Zion, against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. And we thank God for his word. Well, today in our series in Zechariah, we come to probably uh, the best known part of Zechariah. That's chapter 9, verse 9. This is the familiar scene of Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem and fulfilling that prophecy of verse 9. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And by the way, uh, if the kids want to use the worksheets today, uh, I I did them on Palm Sunday. It's probably the only time I could get the worksheets to tie into Zechariah because there's not too many kids' resources out there uh, on this book in the Bible the events of Palm Sunday are described in all four Gospels. And John writes in his Gospel, in John 12:16, he says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. So here was a prophecy fulfilled, but at the time, the disciples didn't realize or understand what was going on. And for us today, if we also are disciples of Jesus, we can easily make the connection to this fulfilled prophecy when Jesus enters Jerusalem because both Matthew and John quote Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But do we understand it? Well, I hope in 20 or so minutes from now you will understand it, or if you already have an idea about it, I will have added some depth to your understanding. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, I hope that what I say will draw you closer to him. Because this fulfilled prophecy reveals what sort of king he is and why we should let him reign over our hearts. Not only that, but this fulfilled prophecy points to the authenticity of Christ as king. To the fact that he is a king who's established by God, who holds history in his hands. So as we come to this passage, I'm going to ask two questions. The first is, what is God doing through his righteous king on a large scale? In other words, what is the the helicopter view or the uh, global view? And the second question is, what is God doing through his righteous king at the level of our human hearts? In other words, zooming into our personal lives from the global perspective to the personal perspective. Uh, If you can make it out there, uh, this is our house on on Google Earth, uh, and I think that's a good illustration of the personal, because home is where the heart is in all sorts of ways. So let's start by zooming out, and as we do, we'll go beyond the few verses I read and touch on Uh, the whole of uh, chapter 9, and also for those of you who are on the ball this morning, you'll have noticed that we skipped chapter 8, so we'll also touch on that chapter as well. So what is God doing uh, through his righteous king on a large scale? Well, if we look at the second half of verse 10, it summarizes what God is doing globally. It says, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. If you have a Bible with footnotes, it will probably tell you that the river is the river Euphrates. Uh, That's significant because it's not the river Jordan, which is in Israel, but the Euphrates, uh, which is a much bigger river. It starts in modern-day Turkey uh, and goes through Syria and Iraq, uh, which were, in ancient times, those two countries, Syria and Iraq today, in the time of Israel, they were Israel's sworn enemies, Assyria and Babylon. Both those uh, empires, if you remember, had invaded uh, Israel before. Also related to this global vision, going back to chapter 8, what chapter 8 is about is giving more detail to the promises of chapter 2, which is the restoration of Jerusalem. Remember the city without walls. And if you remember, Jerusalem symbolically is God's people. For us today, that's the church. And this promises that it will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. And it will be filled uh, not just with Jews who faithfully follow God, but with us Gentiles too. So, chapter 8, verses 20 to 23 say this This is what the Lord Almighty says Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe, and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. And isn't that true? Hasn't it come to pass? Salvation came through Jesus the Jew, and was communicated through his Jewish disciples to the Gentiles, so that now the number of Gentiles in God's kingdom is much greater than the number of people who trusted God from a Jewish background. The ratio isn't exactly 10 to 1, but just like in much of Zechariah, this is figurative language. It's telling us about God's grand plan for the future, salvation of the Gentiles. It's not about mathematically precise ratios. Now, this is a a helicopter or a satellite view, so I'm sweeping through this fairly quickly. But the point is that God is in control. He rules over human history and he establishes his king, the Lord Jesus. As we think about Jesus, and think about what he did on Palm Sunday, he was riding a colt, the full of a donkey, and a colt, the full of a donkey, doesn't travel very far. It's merely a short journey into Jerusalem. Jesus himself, when he was here on earth, didn't travel very far either. He travelled mostly on foot. And yet now his kingdom extends from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth, just as God said it would. Now, if you're sceptical, you could say, well, Jesus was aware of that prophecy in Zechariah, and so he deliberately chose to fulfil it. You'd probably have to admit that unlike his disciples, Jesus deliberately fulfilling it, knowing its deeper meaning, which we'll come to in a minute but I'm not sure how anyone can explain away that prophecy about the growth of the church. As well as that, there's another fulfilled prophecy hiding in plain sight in chapter 9, in the first part of chapter 9, which is, uh, as we read, a list of nations and cities which are vanquished one by one. Uh, You can just about make them out there. Uh, Some of them were, of course, enemies of Israel. Others were not, but they all symbolized the world beyond Israel, the world that didn't follow God and his ways. So you could look to those verses for their symbolic meaning, and that's uh, perfectly uh, fine, a good way to do it. But also, amazingly, they also describe real historical events that took place after Zechariah spoke these words. These nations and cities are described in order from north to south, and they were all on the same route of the invasion taken by Alexander the Great in the year 333 BC. Alexander deliberately chose this route, not because he knew Zechariah's words and wanted to fulfill that prophecy. He chose this route because it strategically captured all his enemies' ports and cut them off from their navies. And Alexander conquered Tyre uh, by building a massive causeway. You see that line uh, joining the mainland to the the island. He he built this massive causeway, half a mile long, built of stone, wood, and rubble from the old city of Tyre to capture the new city which had been moved out onto the island. And in doing that, he fulfilled uh, Zechariah's prophecy, but also another prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 26, which says this about Tyre. They will plunder your wealth and loot and your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for I the Lord have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord." And the ruins of Tyre remain to this day. Now it is true that part of the island along with that causeway is occupied by the modern city of Tyre. But again, the point is not a position in the details. The point is that God's purposes prevail. And also when we look at a, a prophecy like this, we need to relate it to a general principle about Old Testament prophecy, which the Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright describes. He puts it like this. Old Testament prophecy has three different horizons. The near future, the more distant future, and the most distant future. It's a bit like this picture of a plane flying in front of the moon. We all know, of course, that the moon is much, much, much further away than the plane, but when they're in a straight line, we can't discern the difference in the distance. And so it is with prophecy. Zechariah couldn't see the timeline, all he could see was the near horizon. And the near horizon for Zechariah was the coming historical events that would affect all these nations and cities. And one of the things in the near horizon was that his own city, Jerusalem, would be rebuilt along with the temple, and that would all happen before the time of Jesus. And everything that Alexander the Great did in establishing the Greek empire was also on Zechariah's near horizon. And so it's no coincidence that in verse 13, it says the sons of Zion will fight the sons of Greece. But this first near horizon was not a complete fulfillment of the prophecy about Jerusalem to be a city without walls. For that, we need to look to the further horizon, the second horizon, which is the coming of King Jesus, a very different sort of king to Alexander. Alexander. And beyond that is the furthest horizon when Jesus comes again to make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. That's when there's a complete fulfillment of, for example, verse 8, which says, Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. If God promises, we can know for sure that one day what he says will become a reality. And as we zoom out and look at history, that's what we see. And Jesus was fully aware that God is in control and working his purposes out. And that's why Jesus rode on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He could have gone into Jerusalem as a warrior on a warhorse or on a chariot, but he didn't because that wouldn't result in the sort of victory that God was looking to win. Jesus knew and he had taken to heart the prophetic words of Psalm 20. Verses 6 and 7 say, Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. Anointed is another term for the Messiah. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary and the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Also the words of Proverbs chapter 21, verses 29 to 31 say this. The wicked put up a bold front, but the upright give thought to their ways. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory rests With the Lord. As we look at what is happening in Ukraine and in other situations around the world that we see in our TV screen and our internet news feeds, even as we look at what is happening in our own personal lives, are we trusting that God is in control? Do we believe in our hearts that He sees over the horizon of our futures to a better future for those who put their faith in Him? As we try to map out our lives, are we seeking to let God direct our steps? In our, in our own circumstances as a family, of course, we have taken the step uh, for me to go into training for ministry, and we're here for a time, and then we will move on somewhere else. And for James and Zoe, uh, that's uh, coming up uh, in a few months. They're ahead of us on that journey. Uh, Anna, if you have seen the Herald this month, or some of you may be going to get it today, You'll read the story about uh, Laura Whitcroft and her husband. Uh, Laura worked with me in church house. Uh, They made the decision to move from Belfast to Sligo because they realised that uh, God's church needs strengthened out there in the west. Uh, And so that's what they did. I really encourage you, if you get a chance, to read her story. But for all of us, if we're following Jesus, whether we stay put where we are geographically or we move somewhere else, Are we trusting that God sees over the horizon and are we setting out with his purposes in mind? Because the answer to that question, what is God doing through his righteous king on a large scale, on a global scale, is that he is establishing his kingdom here in Mays and across the world. And he will prevail, just as Jesus prevailed even though he rode a mere donkey into Jerusalem and not a war horse, because he was aligned perfectly with the purposes of a sovereign God. And what a reassurance it is to know that God is in control and that he sees over the horizon of our lives. That, if you like, is an external assurance. It's an assurance that comes from the knowledge of the truth about God and about what he does for us in Jesus Christ, A truth we see repeated again and again in the Bible. But the next question has an answer that gives us an internal assurance. The question is, what is God doing through his righteous king at the level of our human hearts? The answer is found in God's promise about his righteous king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus does not come to make war in a physical sense. He does not come to make war like Alexander the Great or Putin or any other despot of history. He comes to win his victory by making peace. In verse 10, it says that the chariots and war horses will be taken away. God takes the physical weapons of war away from the people of Israel. He breaks the battle bow. And that's why the church should never advance by coercive force, whether political or personal. We follow a king who rides on the colt, the foal of a donkey. We follow one who, as it says in verse 10, proclaims peace to the nations. Again, the three horizons help us understand this peace. On the first horizon, in Zechariah's immediate future, there was the hope of peace against the backdrop of invasion and war that happened under the Babylonians and the Assyrians, And there was a limited sort of peace for a time. But then, of course, the Greeks came and then the Romans and they would invade and the Romans were in control when Jesus came. Going forward to the final horizon, the third horizon, there's that hope of a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be no sin, no violence, no harm, no war. Perfect peace, even though people from every nation, tribe and tongue and language will be there. But on the middle horizon, we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem and proclaiming peace. And what sort of peace is this? Well, the word for peace in Hebrew is probably the best known Hebrew word. It's shalom. And here's what one of my favorite Bible resources has to say about it. This is from the theological word book of the Old Testament. You probably haven't heard about it. I didn't until I went to to college, but I found it really useful. It says this about the word shalom, peace means much more than mere absence of war. Completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment are all closer to the meaning. Implicit in shalom is the idea of unimpaired relationship with others and fulfillment in one's undertakings. And we see this fuller meaning echoed in verse 11, where talks of the people who experienced this peace being prisoners of hope and having twice as much restored to them as was lost. Do you have that hope in your heart? Do you have the internal sense of peace that comes only from the Holy Spirit living in you? Have you experienced the answer to Philippians, to the promise of Philippians chapter 4, verses six and seven, which say this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the sort of peace that we get a picture of in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25, which is all about God as the shepherd of his sheep. It says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. Don't we long for that sort of peace, of being able to sleep in peace without any anxious thoughts attacking us? All of this describes the peace that the righteous king riding on a colt the full of a donkey offers to us. And very briefly, how does he bring this peace? The answer is in the middle horizon with Jesus coming as Messiah. Verse 11 gives us a clue that is expanded on in much greater depth in other parts of the Bible. It says, by the blood of my covenant, which we know is by Christ's sacrifice of himself for us on the cross. Jesus conquers by laying down his perfect righteous life for our imperfect, unrighteous lives. He wins the victory so that we might have peace, peace with God that results in an internal peace and ultimately results in an external peace on that third horizon, the new heaven and the new earth. I know Christmas is long past, but the chorus of Hark the Herald Angels Sing sums it up perfectly. Peace on earth And mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So there you have it, that external reassurance that God is in control of all of history and over all our horizons. And the promise of that internal assurance, the peace of God in our hearts. Let me close with one last thing to notice about the righteous king riding on a colt, a foal of a donkey. He doesn't come with weapons of war to force people into his kingdom. Instead, he proclaims the message of peace. He announces it, he speaks it, he shares it. And so we too, if we have received this message, if we have believed it, if we have experienced it, we too should proclaim it, announce it, speak it and share it so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ might go from here in Mays and from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, that is indeed our prayer, that this message of peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go from here to the ends of the earth. And Father God, we thank you that has happened and is happening in in different sorts of ways. We pray that, we thank you for missionaries who are sent, but we pray too that we also, where we are, would be able to share that message of peace. And we pray that that message of peace would be known in places where there is no sense of peace externally, particularly in Ukraine. We pray for the church there. Father God, we pray for your people there, that they would have your peace in their hearts, even as war is a raging outside them. And Father God, we pray for that peace in our hearts too, day by day, that we would know that peace that transcends all understanding as you guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.